This is the Fire Dog Podcast. The views and opinions presented on today's episode are those of the speaker and do not necessarily represent the views of the Department of Defense or the United States Air Force. Welcome, my name is Matt Wilson. Thank you for joining us for episode 31 of the Fire Dog Podcast. Before we get into the episode, don't forget to check out our website, firedog.us. On the site, you'll find every new episode, along with articles from people across the fire service. So make sure to go to the site, save it to your favorites. And if you want to write an article to be featured on the site, click contribute at the top of the page. And as always, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so you can stay plugged into every episode. Our guest today is a 33-year veteran of law enforcement and the co-founder of Lexipol, a public safety consultancy organization. He is a risk management expert and a practicing attorney who has presented a common sense risk management approach to hundreds of thousands of public safety professionals around the world. He holds a master's degree in safety and systems management from the University of Southern California and a Juris Doctorate from Western State University. It is my pleasure to welcome Mr. Gordon Graham. So welcome, sir. You know, it's an absolute pleasure, honor to be speaking with you today. Well, thank you, Sergeant. And I'm really looking forward to this. This should be fun. So I, like many in the fire service, you know, we admire your work and your enthusiasm surrounding public safety. You know, your ideas resonate with a lot of us, clearly, um, because, you know, because of your popularity. And so I'm happy you agreed to come on and and talk with us, share your message. I think it's going to help a lot of people in the Air Force Fire Service, the Department of Defense. Um, I think it's going to benefit a lot of them. So I appreciate you, sir. Thank you. So before we get into it, if you could briefly introduce yourself for those listeners who may not know who you are. Gordon Graham here. And uh, I've been very fortunate in life. Uh, The California Highway Patrol was kind enough to hire me in 1973 and made me a motorcycle cop. I did that for 10 years. And during that period of time, I spent uh, two years picking up a teaching credential and three years in graduate school and four years in law school. And 82 came around and graduated law school, passed the bar, opened my law practice, maintained my job with the uh, CHP, now promoted to a sergeant. And for 10 years, I uh, uh, built uh, several different little businesses. And uh, in 1993, I got a headquarters assignment and was able to build the Office of Risk Management for the California Highway Patrol. A great 33-year career there, but I've been fortunate to be on the international lecture circuit since 1980, talking to people in high-risk industries about the management of risk. What can we do up front to prevent problems from occurring? So that's my my life story in a nutshell. Just as an aside, though, as I look at where I am, I give a lot of credit to the United States Air Force, and I'm not kissing up to you. Uh, the Air Force uh, started around 1947, if I remember correctly. And in 1950, the Air Force took a look back at World War II and the activities of the United States Army Air Corps and where the Air Force is now. And they said, you know what, we've got a problem. We've got a problem with safety. And in 1950, they contracted with the University of Southern California. And for all the listeners here, if you're really bored, and got nothing to do some night, Google this, University of Southern California's Institute of Safety and Systems Management. And the role that your, the Air Force had in starting this program, it was a program designed to educate military leaders on the principles of risk management. And in 1975, they opened the program for non-military personnel. And I was in one of the first classes of non-military personnel where I got hooked on the study of tragedy. So here's my, my whole life in a nutshell. I've been a lawyer now for almost 40 years. As a lawyer, I handle tragedies. Uh, 40 years, thousands of clients. My son died in this motorcycle collision. My house was destroyed in this pipeline explosion. I'm being indicted for excessive force. I'm being fired for harassment. I'm being sued for a collision. You know, as a lawyer, I handle tragedies. As a risk manager, I study tragedies, identify cause, and then build viable control measures, policies, procedures, protocols, rules, directives, systems to prevent problems from occurring. So that's my life in a nutshell, Sergeant. And, uh, uh, thank you for asking. Yeah, well, that's quite a bit. It's quite a bit to take in. Uh, being a lawyer for that long, I imagine you've seen some things. And then, of course, studying risk management as long as you have, I can't imagine the things that you've read and and seen and studied and really eager to pick your brain. I, I have heard you speak pretty extensively, but uh, I'm sure that uh, I'm sure that you'll hit some things I haven't heard today, considering how much time and experience you have. So you mentioned to me when we spoke on the phone uh, that you'd like to s- discuss real risk management. So again, I was fortunate enough to attend your conference in Virginia in August of 2020, and I held on to that 36-page document you distributed. I read it over for a couple of reasons. One, I I wanted to 
be able to keep up with this conversation. And uh, two, I wanted to generate some questions that I thought would be relevant for those in the Air Force Fire Service. So it's, if it's okay with you, we'll just ask a few questions for you, sir. That'd be perfect. Awesome. So obviously you're probably most well-known for the high risk, low frequency, no discretionary time presentation. It, it's on YouTube. It's actually shown in our fire academy at some, for our fire officer three course, actually. And so many of us in the Air Force know you because of that presentation. Uh, I know there's a lot to unpack in that particular um, thing, but I know that that's basically the, um, the foundation. I don't want to call it the foundation, but really the centerpiece of, of a lot that you speak about is those high risk, low frequency, no discretionary time, no time to think things through. So where's the best place to start with that conversation? Well, let's start with this. When I, for 20 years, I was on the road and traveling 40,000 miles a month and given a couple hundred talks a year on risk management to various industries. And the program, when they get the notification, says, oh, it's Gordon Graham, and he's going to talk about risk management. And the uphill battle I have when I do these programs, oh, God, what are they inviting this guy in to talk about the safety stuff for three or four hours? You know, everybody wants to put risk management solely into the safety box, and it does belong there, but it's bigger than that. Everything you do, everything you do in your operations involves risk. You know, some of you will promote. You're doing performance evaluations of your personnel. There's a level of risk. You're, uh, you know, prepping a budget. There's a level of risk. You're backing up a piece of apparatus. There's a level of risk. You're actually handling a downed aircraft. There's a level of risk. You know, and the breadth and the depth of the real risk management. You know, Gordon, you're a nice guy, but bad things are just going to happen. There's nothing you can do. You know, if you don't get anything else out of this program, nonsense, nonsense. Bad things do not have to happen. There are so many things that you can do to prevent bad things from happening if you understand the discipline of risk management. So here's my bottom line. Most of what you do, you do right. Why? Because you've done it before. You've got experience. I know you're good people. You take good people, put them in a high-frequency task, something you do a lot, a phenomenon kicks in called RPDM, Recognition Prime Decision Making. Dr. Gary Klein is all over my recommended rating list. And by the way, if you want a copy of the rating list, uh, lexipol.com, L-E-X-I-P-O-L.com forward slash presentations. And you get a copy of my rating list. Obviously, I'm biased. It's all books on risk management. But Dr. Klein talks about this recognition prime decision making. Good people who get involved in incidents they've experienced before many times, their head kicks in, I've done it before. Why don't I do it the same way I did it last time? I bet shit goes right. If it goes right, I stay out of trouble. So most of what you do, you end up doing right. When things don't go right, it usually gets down to low frequency events, low frequency events. Uh, a classic example for all of you is, uh, I think, that the United States Air Force has the best ARF personnel in the world. That's my opinion. I've been around, and as I talk to people, you guys have got a stellar reputation, stellar reputation. Uh, I think the best on the civilian side, and I've been around quite a while, is Los Angeles City Fire Department. The ARF personnel in Los Angeles City Fire Department are really, really good at what they do. Well, if you'll remember about six years ago, we had a tragedy 400 miles north of San Francisco, excuse me, north of Los Angeles in San Francisco, that Asiana 214, a triple seven that came in from China, missed the runway, broke in half, and people ended up dead. When you when you look at the number of hours the pilot in charge had in a triple seven, I believe it was 43, of which 30 were in a simulator. So he had 13 hours of actual flight time. Uh, how long was the flight he was on from China? 13 hours. He was playing in what I call the top left box, high risk, low frequency, high risk, low frequency. So the San Francisco airport firefighters responded to this. They don't do this at a high frequency at all. Nothing happens at San Francisco International Airport. And I have heard they don't take their training all that seriously. They showed up, people on the runway, the first crew came in, sprayed foam all over the plane, all over the people on the runway. And the second crew drove through the foam and people ended up killing people. These are not bad people with evil intent. They are good people who got involved in a high-risk, low-frequency event. Now, there's two types of high-risk, low-frequency events. Most give you time to think. You have time to think. Use it. Use it to make a good decision. Slow down, as I like to say in my live programs, put away the meth, get into some heroin, slow down on these high-risk, low-frequency events. 
but there are a very small number of high-risk, low-frequency events that don't give you any time to think. I call those the high-risk, low-frequency, non-discretionary time events, or more simply stated, core critical tasks. Very risky, done very rarely with no time to think. In the fire world, two in, two out is a core critical task. Uh, bomb threats are a core critical task. Shoot, don't shoot for the arson investigators is a core critical task. For you and what you do in our operations, that's a core critical task. Very risky, done very rarely with no time to think. These are the ones that need the constant ongoing training. Every day has got to be a training day and not random training, but focused training in every occupation, in every profession, you've got to identify your core critical tasks. And I'll, I'll ramble here for a second. We had at the University of Southern California, all these guest lecturers coming in talking about submarine safety, submarine safety. And they talked about fires on submarines, very risky, done very rarely with no time to think. Every day we have to train. Uh, damage control, undersea collisions, very risky, done very rarely with no time to think. Uh, helicopter operations, tail rotor failure, very risky, done very rarely with no time to think. For cops, shoot, don't shoot, very risky, done very rarely with no time to think. You've got to take a look at your job description, identify those core critical tasks, and make every day a training day. I rambled on that. I apologize, Sergeant, but that 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 is the core of what I'm trying to get across to people. You know, most of what you do, you do right because most of what you do, you've done before, and you're good people. When you get involved in high-risk, low-frequency events, bad things are going to happen. Got to train for them, folks. And if you have time to think, use it. Yes, sir. And don't apologize to me. Uh, I'd like to unpack a, a lot of what you said, um, specifically the training. Uh, I'd really like to hit hard on that because I think that's probably the most important thing for core critical tasks. But you also mentioned within your uh, within your discussions and within your within your writing the five pillars of success, people, policy, training, supervision, and discipline. I'd like to start out talking about policy, if, if you don't mind. Uh, for, the love to. for the most part, we're pretty squared away in the Department of Defense with recruiter, recruiting, hiring, uh, retaining employees. Most of our firefighters start out in the military, and then they go on to become federal civilian employees in most cases, not all the time, most of the time. So really solid people, really solid recruiting process um, and security checks, background checks. We have a very good system in place within the military for that kind of stuff. Policy, I think that there's always room to improve with policy and training, those two things specifically, just from my perspective in the military. So you recommend developing policies that focus on the specific job descriptions, those specific jobs and those core critical tasks. So hypothetically speaking, if I am a brand new fire chief, creating a policy from scratch, you know, where should I start with policy? Well, you know, I would be, I, I would love someday to take a look at the United States Air Force Policy Manual. Let me see, how many pages would there be in there? Three pages, four pages, 500 pages, 5,000 pages, 10,000 pages. My guess is you've got reams and reams and reams of policy. The first thing I would do is I would color code the policy manual, color code it. Print all the low-risk stuff, all the admin stuff, all that stuff on white paper. I'm telling you, if you've got 10,000 pages of policy, 9,500 of those are low-risk administrative stuff, uniform requirements, all these types of things, uh, time off, all that stuff. Print it on white paper. Print your high-risk tasks on yellow paper, the stuff where if it's not done right, you're going to end up getting yourself in trouble. Those core critical tasks, print them on red paper. Very risky, done very rarely with no time to think. So you could take this 10,000-page policy manual and get it down to 100 pages very quickly. My guess is you've probably already done that by pulling out, separating the chaff from the grain, and getting some operations manual for actual ARF operations. You've got that manual. My guess is you've already done that. You've separated all the nonsense out and got those core critical tasks. That's step number one. Step number two, watch out for overuse of the shall word. You mentioned you have good people in your organization. I believe that. You hire smart people, give them discretion, please. Give them discretion. Not everything's going to fall within a policy. There are going to be some events where people have got to think on their own. And if you have them locked into shall, must, absolute, and by the way, 
I am not opposed to those words when they really are legitimate and necessary. But we've got to give our people some some discretion where they can use their sense. I, I see policy manuals um, shall never drive more than 10 miles an hour over the post speed limit. You know, shall never uh, do this, shall never do this. It, well, you know, maybe it's necessary, but watch out for overuse of the shall word in the court of public opinion and in the court of law. You have taken away all discretion on part of the involved employee. Uh, and I'm not bad-mouthing anybody. If you, if you take a look at the operations of the Transportation Security Administration, there are thousands of shalls in there. Got to do it this way, got to do it this way, got to do it this way. And I'm not saying I hope I don't come across as being negative here. But if, if you've got to really control operations of people, but when you hire the best of the best, as you have, give them some discretion in what they do. Yeah, great advice. And just for context, in the Department of Defense and the Air Force specifically, we do more than um, aircraft rescue firefighting stuff. We are structurally structural firefighters, uh, wildland in some cases, and uh, EMTs and advanced EMTs and paramedics in some cases as well. So we really run the gamut, um, and we. You know, we're we're a fire service like you would see off of a, a military installation, you know, with with less call volume. And and that's one of the big points um, that I wanted to hit home today is so you talk a lot about core critical tasks. And it, when I sit back and think about it from the Air Force perspective, a lot of our tasks would probably fall into the category of core critical tasks, considering we don't uh, see that much action. We don't have a call volume like our municipal counterparts. Um, so well, I was going to say one more thing on policy. I can't remember what it was. Oh, yeah, you mentioned that that there's reams and reams of policy if you, if you were to look into the Air Force, and you're absolutely right about that. And a, a few years ago, higher headquarters Air Force kind of went through an effort to you know, to, to get rid of some things. And I think they succeeded in, in some ways, but there still is a lot of um, documentation that we have to look at. And specifically in the fire service within the military, there's a lot of documents we have to take, and then we have to make our specific policy, right, for the department. Um, and so it is a complicated process, but sound advice on identifying those low risk and then high risk and then high risk, low frequency, and then color coding. I mean, that's, that's pretty simple. And from a from a um, firefighter's perspective, if I were you know brand new on the floor and you gave me a binder with color coded paper, I'd I'd uh, I think I'd be much better off. Um, so yeah, well, I, 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 somebody asked me, well, Gordon, geez, what type of algorithm did you use to come up with this? Um, no algorithm. I was in the bathroom and uh, there was no reading material. The only book that was in the bathroom one day was the phone book. Well, Gordon, why would you have a phone book in the bathroom? Because my boy was about three or four, and he was learning how to pee. And uh, so I picked up the phone book because I had to read something because I'm type A. And I noticed that some of the pages of the phone book are white. Some of the pages in the phone book were yellow. And some of the pages in this particular phone book were yellow and white. He had a little problem with target acquisition back when he was young. When I opened up the yellow pages, some of the ads were printed on red paper. And I'm thinking, you could get your ad for free on white paper in six-point print. Or you could put it on yellow paper and print it in red in 20-point print. Why would anybody want to do that? They want it to stand out. They want it to stand out. So let's make those things stand out that are, that are critical. When people pick up the policy manual and if you have a job and you name them all, the paramedic side of stuff, the wildland firefighter side of stuff, uh, all those things, they can instantly see what's risky. That was the uh, the foundation. I got invited in to do quite a bit of work with the United States Forest Service years ago. And when that urban wildland interface started to disappear, where people started moving into the woods and they were shocked, my gosh, there is no fire department here. You're living in the woods, my friend. How do you think this is going to work out for you? And all of a sudden, fire. Uh, um, forest service personnel were getting involved in structure fires. Well, you know, that's high risk, low frequency. You know, when you start taking a look at wildland firefighter deaths, you know, rarely do you see career United States Forest Service firefighters dying. Overrepresented every year are the municipals, the seasonals, and the volunteers. For them, it's high risk, low frequency. Reverse it. 
give me a smoke jumper and put that smoke jumper on a high-rise fire in downtown Virginia Beach, they're going to get themselves in trouble. They're playing in the top left box, high risk, low frequency. The, the, the problem, you know, I, I, I looked at, uh, there's some police departments out here that are combination police and fire departments. And we have one up in Northern California called Sunnyvale. It's a department of public safety. And I was talking to a Sunnyvale cop and I said, wow. I said, what do you do? He says, well, I'm on the, I'm on the SWAT team. I, I'm a SWAT cop. I am a, a rescue diver. I'm a certified rescue diver. I am a paramedic. I am this, I am this. I said, what do you do? He spent my entire life is training. I just train and train and train. I got a problem with that. You know, this the brain can only take so much, you, you know, and let's make sure that we really synthesize down what we do and what's important now and get those high risk, low frequency tasks and don't burden ourselves. You start putting people in with multiple hats, all of these required areas of expertise, you're stretching people pretty thin. Yeah, and that's the fire department in a nutshell, really, um, with with structural firefighting, wildland, and, and medical, and in ARF in our case. And so, it, you know, it's uh, it's worth it's worth kind of taking a step back and taking a look at that, and uh, you know, developing your policy accordingly. Um, so, I'd like to talk a little bit about training. Um, again, like I had mentioned earlier, probably. One of the biggest takeaways I get from your discussions is the importance of training and, of course, the core critical tasks. So obviously, what we lack in experience, we need to make up for in training. I watched a discussion with you and Dr. Kern that we were just speaking about earlier, and I remember you mentioning training should be realistic, scenario-based. Um, yes. So how do you recommend an organization create training like that? For example, in the Air Force, you know, we're responsible with, for pi pilot egress from fighter aircraft, clearly a high-risk low frequency, no time to think it through kind of situation. So given that it's not so easy to duplicate a scenario like that, what's the best way for us to approach that kind of training? You know, it's funny you mentioned that. About 10 years ago, I was doing a class for an ambulance company down in San Diego. And the ambulance company was next door to the San Diego football stadium. This is on a Tuesday or a Wednesday. I'm doing this class. And I hear all this cheering, yeah, yeah. It was a crowd cheering. You know, there's nobody in the parking lot. Where's this crowd coming from? The San Diego Chargers, and my guess is the entire National Football League does this, while they're practicing, they've got the sounds of the crowd in the background, making it a little more realistic, that you can't hear the quarterback when the quarterback's calling an audible. You can't hear these things. You've got to be able... And I said, now that's fascinating. They, they're trying to make the training more realistic in the National Football League by putting the crowd signs behind them. For you, you know, the, for, you know, when I look at these things where it's on paper or a PowerPoint presentation, you know, there might be some value to that. But that's not solid, realistic, ongoing, verifiable training. You got to make it as realistic as possible. I watched what happened in law enforcement from going to a static range where you fired at a target to where we are today, where the targets fire back at you with plastic bullets, and it's more realistic. Sometimes they have you jog in place before you go in there, so you're already winded a little bit, and your, your decision-making is compromised. Sometimes they have the heat on. You know, I, I look at these fire simulators for these things. So what can we do to make it more realistic? The more you can make it with the sounds, with the temperature, with the, uh, the heart rate, with the excitement, where people default to that training, uh, that's all I've got to rely on right now is my training. The more realistic you can make it, the better off you're going to be. So my guess is that you have, you know, the, as I landed airports, this is always, this is always a little scary for people who don't understand what's going on at most airports. They've got a fuselage or a, a mock-up fuselage someplace near the runway where firefighters can practice on it. And every now and then you'll come in at nighttime and they'll be doing a nighttime drill, a nighttime firefighting, and you see a fuselage on fire. People are looking out the window. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. What's going on here? But that's 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 enhancing the reality, adding in all those elements, the heat, the excitement, the noise, uh, making it real. I don't know how familiar you are if you study other military training at all or specifically Navy SEAL training. Um, they talk a lot about. Well, this one particular Navy SEAL, Jocko Willink, that I listened to quite a bit, he talks a lot of he talked a lot about his deployment to Ramadi, Iraq in 2006 and, and the training leading up to that and his experience there. And he talked about um, 
using paintball simulation and and really and so uh, really along the same lines is what you're talking about making it making it as realistic as possible and and getting your heart rate elevated and actually having somebody shoot back at you um, and having to do casifax and stuff like that and uh, it, it sounds really to me it when if you want to break it down to its simplest form is you have to be creative really you have to be creative with the training um, absolutely to make it to make it realistic and absolutely and, and again at the risk of boring you i i rode that motorcycle for the chp for almost 10 years and i went down hard on june 18th 1981 uh, i cut a 914 porsche in half that was the end of my motorcycle career at the chp so fast forward to i retired in 2006 2010 2011 and there someplace mrs graham and i took the kids to some amusement park and i forget where it was and there was a motorcycle uh, with a wraparound screen all the way around the motorcycle where it was really making it i was watching these young kids ride this thing really making it feel like you were in a race they had all the motorcycles alongside of you and passing you know, all that stuff and you had a motorcycle which would lean it would accelerate it was a very clever setup that they had there and my my lovely bride you know we have an agreement no more motorcycles and uh, so uh so she says why don't you try that why don't you try that you know and there's all these kids around here and i'm the old man you know and i got on that thing and it felt just the same as it did back in the 70s just the same as it did and you know the, the accelerator worked and you clutch you had to shift and do all this stuff on this motorcycle and i got going in this race and i'm i really got into it where my heart rate was up i mean this i'm sitting still this thing's going back and forth and i'm accelerating you can feel the acceleration and everything else and i hear these kids look at that old man go look at that old man go it, you know and at the end of it i was sweating i was out of breath and i hadn't moved one foot but that's how realistic that was realistic it was and when i got off the bike all these kids are looking at me and I had the second highest score of the day as, you know, a very old man. So that that made me feel good. The, the skills were still there, although albeit quite rusty. But that really woke me up as to how valuable this um, scenario-based training can be when you make it real, real realistic. I thought I was in the middle of a road race. I'm glad you brought that up because it, it, it brings us to the category of virtual trainers. And it's something that I've seen just kind of creep in to the fire service specifically. I mean, there's a trainer out there now that they have in England where you put on a vest that heats up in an SCBA pack and you actually, you have to pull a hose that's in a, in some kind of um, reel that will actually do the, uh, the react, it will actually have hose reactions and stuff, but you're looking at a screen with virtual reality goggles on and you know, you have to, fight a fire that way. And I wonder what your opinion is on that. I mean, obviously this, this particular journey you're talking about sounded like it was very realistic, but do you have any other kind of opinion on, on virtual trainers in general? Um, well, you know, I, I would prefer the real thing, but let's talk money and everything gets down to money. How expensive is it to really set up one of those training scenarios? How much cheaper can we do it? And what's the Delta in terms of level of knowledge you leave with? So I'm a big fan of the virtual stuff because I know that's the future. I also believe we're probably in Gen 2 or Gen 3 of this right now. Uh, in five years and 10 years, they will be um, replicating the actual event very, very closely, very closely. And uh, I, I'm all in favor of that. The, the key is, though, is to get actual fire service personnel. And for those of you who are nearing retirement, who have a background in coding and all those types of things, that might be a good field to get in. Because if you got some eggheads who have never fought a fire in their life, uh, as, I, as I like to say in my cop classes, if you ain't got beat up, if you don't got beat up, don't be talking to me about use of force because you don't know anything about it. You think you know because you watch TV. You don't know Jack. Uh, for the fire service world, oh, yeah, I know how to do this. No, you don't. Get some real active personnel in there who specialize in this to make sure these things are real. And it'll, it'll do well for you. I, I am a fan of that. Yeah, and that's that's probably one of the, the hardest things in terms of change management, right? Because you're we're at generation two, or in some cases generation one, maybe, and and when it when it hits the streets and it's so expensive, um, a lot of people that've been around for a little while are going to say, "Oh no, thank you." You know, that's it's not that realistic. It only it only mimics this one particular thing, but I think it's one of those things that requires patience. It's like, yeah, it, it's not the best, but 
understand that a few decades down the road, it might be exactly the same, almost as close to the same thing. Well, you know, let's take a look at this also. Uh, when I worked at the ice cream store back in college and high school, I worked at an ice cream store, Swenson's Ice Cream, and you probably heard that on one of those videos. Earl Swenson bought a calculator. It was the size of a typewriter, an IBM Selectric typewriter. It had four functions, add, subtract, multiply, and divide. It weighed probably 30 pounds, and it was $3,000, $3,000. My sister was dating a guy who was a uh, chemist, and he was did very well financially. He had a gold watch on with the big red dial. This is in the 60s, and it had a digital display of the time only. That was it, time only, $5,000. When I opened up my law practice in 1982, I bought an IBM PCXT, IBM PCXT with a 10 megabit hard drive. Ooh, 10 megabits. It was $10,000 for the computer and the printer. You know, the young kids are, are listening to this, no way, no way, no way, way. That's the way it was. Now look at this. I think that the, the iPhone that you have right there in front of you has more computing ability than the space shuttle did. You know, it's just incredible where we are today and how this stuff is becoming more and more real and downloadable to your uh, phone. It's it, the sky's the limit on this stuff. Smart people need to be thinking about this. Yeah, and it's important to have perspective and think about that. You know, and the fact that the uh, the phone in everybody's pocket is as powerful or more more powerful than the than the space shuttle. That's uh, that's pretty incredible to think about, you know, and so you need yeah. perspective. And that's a very short amount of time in the grand scheme of things, really. Um, so you, you talk about solid, realistic, ongoing verifiable training. And it's it's something that you coined when you worked for the California Highway Patrol, if my memory serves me right. So if you could, for our listeners, explain what that is. And I'm particular, in, particularly interested in your suggestion to make sure that training was no more than six minutes of that little piece of that. If, if you could explain that, that'd be great. Well, yes. This all started in graduate school. I was listening to these professors, and, and mind you, I, I back then, 1975, I'm a motorcycle cop. I got two years on the job. Let's just be honest. I'm a stone-cold idiot. Having a ball on my motorcycle, having fun, uh, recognizing the risks involved in the job. But I was a kid back then. And I'm listening to these senior military executives giving this these lectures on uh, submarine damage, undersea collisions, and tail rotor failure on helicopters, and why they need to train every day. And I'm thinking, why aren't we doing this? Why aren't we doing this? So in 1975, I wrote a memo to the CHP on a better way to train people. And if there's any bosses listening to this today, or if you are a boss in the future, remember this. Just because somebody doesn't carry rank does not mean they're an idiot. You know, and I had this idea on how to make every day a training day. Graham, who do you think you are? Are you aware the California Highway Patrol has existed somehow without your advice since 1929? And I think we'll exist for the next 100 years without your advice. We know what we're doing. We know what we're doing. You know, we don't need your help. And I was shut down. I, you know, it wasn't disappointing. I just, I, I guess it was disappointing, but it hurt my feelings that nobody would listen to it. So that was 75. Uh, then I spent, you know, the three years in graduate school, four years in law school, 82, promoted to sergeant. Now I've got a squad of cops. So I started training my squad on every day, a training day, focusing on these core critical tasks. Of the thousands of things that CHP motorcycle cops do, there's about 10 that are overrepresented in tragedy. Overrepresented in tragedy. One, back then, for you motorcycle people, there was no rim locks on motorcycles and no run flats. If you, we had tubes in our tires, and if you had a front blowout, that was a death sentence. A front blowout on your bike, that tube would separate from the tire, wrap around the fork, it would cause the front wheel to lock up, you would get chucked off your bike, and you're going to end up dead. The helmets back then were garbage helmets. The BT-1 helmet, half-shell helmet, it was only for looks. So there's a, there's a drill there that you learn in motorcycle school. You, you sense that front flat, lock it up, lock it up, lock up that rear brake. Don't touch the front brake, lock up that rear brake. And if you got to put it down, you got to put it down. But it's better than getting chucked off that bike at speed. So I would talk about that. I would talk about shoot, don't shoot. 
I would talk about uh, uh, you know the the various things that are very risky done very rarely heart attacks. Um, how are we getting in trouble? And I was trying to make every day a training, and it was so rudimentary. I've got a file of those initial training bullets. I look at them now and say, what an embarrassment. But when I promoted to sergeant, you know, I I was had been a union rep for seven years. I knew how we were getting in trouble internally. I was on the occupational safety committee for seven years. I knew how we were getting hurt. So I tried to build those things. And I was a lawyer, albeit brand new, but I knew how we were getting sued. And I tried to make every day a training day. And that spread from my squad to the other squads on afternoon shift, ultimately to the office. And ultimately, organically, it spread statewide. Nobody wants to work in Los Angeles. So new sergeants would come in for a year. They would experience my daily training bulletins. They'd go back where they came from. Gordon, we don't have anything like this. Can you mail us a copy? Can you mail us a copy? And I was mailing those things around the state. You know, I just finished a great book. And again, I'm rambling here, Sergeant Wilson. But... You know, I just finished a great book by Dan Heath called Upstream. Brilliant, brilliant book. For those of you who have never read Left of Bang, Left of Bang is a great book. Another book I will put up in that caliber is this Upstream book by Dan Heath. The, the takeaway I got from that is the macro starts with micro. The macro, the big picture, getting things solved, the big one, starts with the micro. And he gives scores of examples in there on how little efforts can spread organically. So going back to the training thing, you know, what was going on with one squad in one office spread throughout the entire state. Um, I'm a big fan of, oh, and by the way, this, this, uh, that was in 75, the CHP adopted the program in 85. In 95, I got a big award from the governor of the state for excellence in law enforcement training. And when they presented it to me, you know, the governor said, do you have anything you'd like to say? And I've already said it to you. I'll say it to the group again. You know, when somebody comes up to you and says, I have a better idea, do not dismiss them because they lack rank. You know, they're smart. Maybe they chose not to promote because they love what they do. How do you think we won World War II? And I'm not being rude here. I don't think the Pentagon's had an original idea in their life. All of the weapons systems, with the exception of the A-bomb, started where? Some soldier, some sailor, some Marine, some airman in the middle of nowhere. You know what? There's a better way to protect these planes. There is a better way to refuel. There's a better way to check this ordinance. There's a better way to do this stuff. And that micro idea, run with it. Obviously, the Pentagon, they can approve things and get things and fund things. But, you know, listen to the people at the lowest levels who are doing, doing those things. And I know right out there now, you got women and men watching this who are saying, you know, how does this guy know so much about our operations? I just know the way things work in government that you get shut down because you don't have ranks sometimes. Yeah. Yeah, it does happen. And it's gotten better just in my short time in the military, actually. And they have these uh, they have these initiatives that they encourage um, innovation and all these things. They have, we did a conference. Well, I say we, the Air Force, did a conference. Um, I can't remember the name of it. But anyways, they brought on Elon Musk and they talked to him like, what do we do? What can we do as an organization to be innovative and to innovate? And um, he said some things that were pretty um, counterintuitive to the way that we do business. But uh, the general sat up on the stage. was like, okay, yeah, it's something to to consider. So, I guess our ears are open, or you know, the the Air Force are, and I would think the DoD is is open to to listening to the little guy. I think I think that's the case now, and because the culture is kind of moving in that direction. Um, and you mentioned with this training, and uh, you know, focusing on those core critical tasks, like you said, and making it six minutes. What is the uh, What's the reason behind that that six minute? Well, the, the the reason and how it actually happened are two different things. Uh, when I came up with this idea to get this on a statewide level, the the boss said, "How much time you want to spend every day doing this?" Well, I hadn't thought that through. I hadn't thought that through. But remember, I was a lawyer, and lawyers bill in one tenth of a billable hour increments, which is six minutes. So a lawyer's life is six minutes. So. When the boss said, Gordon, how much time do you want to spend on this every day? Uh, six minutes. Gordon, I know you've done the research on it, on uh, adult training. We'll go with six minutes a day. Uh, I was very fortunate because 10 years later, I'm glad I chose six minutes. What's the average adult attention span? Six minutes. Uh, do adults run better by immersion or by repetition, 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 repetition? Uh, have you ever attended a class uh, that was four hours long that could have been covered in six minutes? Well, yeah, I could. Uh, it, it's cost effective. Six minutes a day 
uh, that's a half, uh, you know, 30 minutes in a week, that's four, two hours in a month, that's 24 hours a year. And it costs you nothing to do it. Do it on three back-to-back eight-hour training days. That's a budget buster. You know, um, six minutes, I, I like that. Keeping people focused on things. For those of you who have never been to my website, luxapole.com, if you go down to the bottom of the homepage, I've got two to three-minute little tips of the day. Tips of the day. And I get so many comments from people, positive comments. That's just the right length of time. That's just the right length of time. Well, you know this. If I send you a video, and I sent a video out this morning on Ted Gundy, and for those of you not familiar, um, a sniper in the Battle of the Bulge, World War II, and he got invited back to Fort Benning in 2015, I believe, to shoot the new the new rifles vis-a-vis what he used to have. This is a 20-minute video. When you see a 20-minute video, no, nope, I'm not going to watch it. I'm, I don't have 20 minutes. That's a third of an hour. I don't have 20 minutes. So the caption I put on the thing that I sent out today to all my friends is, it's 20 minutes. Trust me, you'll be glad you watched it. It's a very powerful 20 minutes, not one moment wasted. But when you generally get a videotape from somebody that's 15, 20 minutes long, what do you do? You know, you trash it. I don't have that kind of time to watch these things. So we've got to keep it short, keep it sweet, get right to the point and make the point. So, uh, yeah, I, I like the six minutes a day for all those various reasons. Yeah, that's really relevant now, too, with our um, with the phones and kind of instantaneous gratification that we have with the with the Internet and everything else. Our attention spans may be, um, I'm sure, anatomically, physiologically, we're the same as we were. And we've been for a long time. We've evolved and we have the same brain chemicals. But. We're, you know, we're surrounded by these technologies that give us instantaneous gratification. And, um, you know, it could be argued that, you know, maybe our attention span is even less. And, uh, could be. and you know, those two-minute videos are, you know, hitting the mark clearly because you know, a lot of people like it. And I, I watch it myself. Um, just to clarify, though, do you, do you recommend that all training uh, – that's not what I'm assuming, but I, I'm just – just wonder if you could clarify. Not all training uh, you recommend to be six minutes, right? I mean, there's some no. – yeah, obviously, yeah. There, there's got to be some immersion training. When you have a, a brand new theory, a brand new tool, a brand new something, you've got to have the immersion training. And my guess is, is your, your ARF personnel and your EMTs, they get that immersion training at the start of their career. That's the solid and realistic, where they get the breadth and the depth of everything related to that. But 30 days after you take a class, if nothing is done to reinforce what was taught, you don't remember much. So if you don't have the experience, which is the high frequency side of things, you got to identify those you don't see a lot. And those are the ones we need to focus that training on. You know, it's like booster shots. Some of you've got kids, you go in, uh, the doctor says, uh, oh, you need a, uh, your kid needs this booster shot. Your kid needs this vaccine. Uh, We had that last year. Well, the level of immunity deteriorates over time. I don't know. I got surprised on this and I'm showing my age here, but I stood in line back in the 50s for a sugar cube for the polio vaccine. Polio back in the 40s was killing a lot of people. Uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt was a victim of polio. A lot of people were in iron lungs. Polio is a big deal. And Jonas Salk and a couple other people came up with this brilliant thing, this vaccine. You know what? It was one and done. I took that polio vaccine and that was it. That was it. So here I am earlier this year getting the COVID vaccine. And I learned it's not one and done. This is going to have to be repeated regularly throughout your life, at least once a year, possibly even more. There's some some talk about incorporating with the flu shot, et cetera, et cetera. And then there's technology issues involved in that. But the level of immunity deteriorates over time. You've got to boost it up. Same with training. Knowledge deteriorates over time. You've got to boost it up. And the closer we can bring the knowledge pre-incident, the better off we're going to be. So the one thing I'm looking at for my company is in-vehicle, in-route training, training people in route to the call specific to the tasks, and this involves some artificial intelligence, specific to the tasks you're going to encounter. Uh, Overturned grocery store truck. Every firefighter knows this. Cops do not know this. Overturned grocery store trucks are unplacketed hazardous material haulers. That grocery store truck has got granular chlorine for the swimming pool and mug root beer on the same truck. You know why it's not placarded? Because they got 490 pounds of granular chlorine. That's short of 500, which mandates the placard. 
So what's the difference between 490 pounds and 500 pounds? And please don't tell me 10 pounds. You know, that's an unplacketed and hazardous material hauler. I want everybody to know you roll up on an overturned grocery store truck. It's more than groceries in there. There are hazmats in that load. Clearly, if it was placarded, oh, boy, but it's a placarded load. But it's not placarded because they the minimum standards do not apply. You know, the risks, sometimes we, we get mixed up on what's risky and not risky. Overturned grocery store trucks are scarier to me than an overturned gasoline tanker because we know that gasoline tanker is a problem. The grocery store truck is, is relatively benign. No, it's not. Yeah, I appreciate you clarifying that. And you, you mentioned something in the seminar in 2019 about the training and introducing it or giving the training in the beginning of the shift. And for you as a highway patrol, you know, when you did guard mount and, and you got together and said, hey, this is where uh, I'm assuming, hey, this is the patrols you'll be on and this is what you're doing for the day. That's when you would deliver the training, right? Is there yeah. is there is there a reason for that? I mean, is that when we're... Uh, I guess our minds are most open to to hear things. Well, actually, it's it's a logistical question for the CHP. Okay. I believe we are the only state police in the country that doesn't take our cars home. Most state troopers take their cars home. They start their shift when they get in their car at home. We don't do that on the CHP. Everybody comes to one of the 110 area offices, and we deploy from there. So from a logistic standpoint, everybody was together. And that's the complaint I get or the comment I get from people. Well, Gordon, you know, we don't all sit around in a circle like you did in the highway patrol. We just go right to work every day. How do I get that training if we don't aren't all together? You got to log on at some point during the day. You got to log on. And part of my my company, uh, the Lexapol system that I've used is when you log on, you're greeted with a training bulletin, mostly specific to your job and specific to core critical tasks, followed up with a test question. So every day you get trained and tested. That's the other half of the Lexapol knowledge management system, training and testing. So um, I, I think you're also right at the start. Of, I don't really care when people do it during the day, but at the start of the day, let's just get it out of the way. It's sort of like that theory, make your bed. You know, you get, get something right. You count on it every day at the same time. If you have your own little system on how to do it, uh, then, then use yours. But uh, kicking off the day with training, I think is a good idea. Yeah, and willpower is finite, right? And and I think you probably have most of it in the morning, um, and that's what I've noticed, anyways. Or the you have more of a willingness to, to get things done. I personally, I like to do the harder things in the morning, so I don't have as much willpower later in the day. So I think there's something to be said about delivering the training as soon as possible in a shift. Um, well, I'd like to round out our conversation uh, with the rest of the five pillars of success that you mentioned in your document. It's uh, Supervision and discipline. Now, I think we do a really good job of this in the military. We're trained very extensively, really, really on the military side, in supervising and, and listening and, and mentoring and all these things. You know, of course, some people are better at it than others, and you know, we're all human. But I think we're trained really well on it. Um, so, I, I'd like to hit on the importance with supervision and discipline in regards to negligent misconduct. You know, how can a good supervisor? and accountability prevent bad things from happening? Well, let's start with this. I have an eight-hour class I teach entitled Supervision 101, and I'm old school, no PowerPoint. I, I talk and I draw. But in my supervision class, everybody starts off with a three-by-five card on their desk. These are in-service supervisors from public safety agencies for the most part. What is the primary mission of a supervisor? Please write down your answer on the three-by-five card what is the primary mission of a supervisor? And I go around and kick, uh, pick up the cards. Literally a third to a half of the cards have nothing written on them. When I read something, rarely do I read the right answer. My primary mission is making sure the air conditioning is on early on hot days. No. My primary mission is improving morale. No. My primary mission, and this is the one I read most often, is taking care of my people. No. Primary mission of a supervisor in any occupation, in any profession, is systems implementation. Management builds the rules. Management keeps the rules up to date. The primary mission of a supervisor is enforcement of organizational rules. And if you promote people who can't or won't enforce rules, that's a problem lying in wait. In my long programs, you show me a tragedy in any high-risk occupation. I will show you approximate cause of X, whatever. The real problem line in wait all too often 
is a supervisor not behaving like a supervisor or on the alternative, a supervisor who tried to behave like a supervisor and got no support from management. If either of those is present in an operation, that is a problem line in wait. So what I learned about supervision did not come from the California Highway Patrol Academy. Uh, I, I got some training there in 1985, but remember I trained in, I, I promoted in 1982. You know where I got my valuable training, Sergeant? My dad, my dad. Son, congratulations, I see you're a sergeant now. Well, thanks, dad. Son, do you know what the difference is between being a sergeant and being a cop? Yeah, 200 bucks a month. There's another difference, son. Last week, all you had to do was follow policy. Now you got to enforce policy. And some people are going to hate your guts for enforcing policy. Son, if you want to be popular, stay on your motorcycle, ride up and down the Hollywood freeway with Ponch and John, and you'll be popular. You've chosen to promote. You got to take people on. And you're saying, well, you're lucky your dad was a cop. My dad was not a cop. My dad's big job, as he liked to call it, was in World War II. He was a chief engineer of the United States Merchant Marine, schlepping bombs across the Pacific for the war effort. The Japanese were not stupid. They knew if they could break up the supply chain, they could win the war. And so they had submarines off the California coast. Off the, right off the California coast, it was a very big deal back in World War II. My mother was a block warden, making sure that all the houses were dark in San Francisco during World War II, so we couldn't be attacked. This was a big deal, and by the way, Back then, we were a nation at war. We are no longer a nation at war. We're now a military at war. Uh, you know, and for those of you who have, it's a paid political statement here, for those of you who have never listened to Sirius XM, Channel 148, Channel 148, old-time radio, listen to those old-time radio shows that were uh, made in World War II. It, it's amazing what you will learn in those shows. They have the vintage ads on those shows. It is utterly fascinating how America was a nation at war. Jack Benny program. Jack, you're, you're late today. What happened? I stopped off to buy some war bonds today, Tommy. And you need to buy war bonds too. For all, My gosh, you young kids today have no clue what war bonds are. No clue what rationing was and rationing cards and registering your tires. Ladies, take your grease down to your local army depot. We can make bombs out of that grease. Holy moly. But anyhow, I'm digressing again, getting all worked up on this. You know, my dad's job was schlepping bombs across the ocean. You know, uh, bombs loaded, boats loaded with bombs is filled with risk. So they had convoy operations. They had zigzag operations. They had smoke screen operations. They had blimp operations. And on the boats loaded with bombs, they had a special rule, no smoking. Is there a reason you would like a no smoking policy on a boat loaded with bombs? You throw enough butts off the side of a boat, you throw enough matches off the side of a boat, sooner or later it's gonna catch a vent. Sooner or later you're gonna lose the bombs, you're gonna lose the boat, you're gonna lose the crew. And that, that's a very big deal in a war effort. So my father, as a chief engineer, had to, the no, uh, had to enforce the no smoking policy. Here's a question for you. What percentage of military people in World War II were smokers? I would not be surprised if it was a three digit number, all of them. So my dad not only had to quit smoking, but he had to enforce the no smoking policy. And when you hear stories about people being physically assaulted by people under their command because of nicotine rage, you know, that makes you think. I've never been physically assaulted as a sergeant by one of my workers for enforcing policy. Those were tough, tough days. You got to enforce the policy. And, you know, when you when you see people doing things right, and we already established this at the top of the hour. The vast majority of things your people do, they're doing right. Catch your people doing something right and take the time to document it. You know, I know we're running out of time here, but if you don't get anything else out of this hour, please catch your people doing something right. The number one complaint I get from employees around the world, every occupation, every profession, the only time I hear from my boss is when something's wrong. We know your people do more right than they do wrong. Catch your people doing something right and pat them on the back. Praise in public. Ratify the good behavior. Encourage future good behavior. You know, I'm, I'm again, in my little world, I'm nobody. I'm retired. Occasionally, Mrs. Graham and I will be out to dinner. Guys come up to the table. Excuse me, Gordon. Gordon Graham, how you doing? Sir, I worked for you in 1983. You were my first sergeant. I don't remember you. He said, that's okay, sir. I was telling my wife at dinner that Sergeant Graham, that's the best sergeant in the history of the highway patrol. I did the best I could, son, but we have some great supervisors out there. 
Nope. You were the only sergeant who regularly used to walk us out to our motorcycle at the end of shift and thank us for a good day's work. Now, how did I learn to do that? Because I'm sort of, sort of a genius. No, I had a great sergeant who caught me by surprise when I had a year on. Gordon, let me walk you out to your bike. I, didn't, I don't get the chance to thank you often enough, Gordon. You know, for what, sir? Gordon, every time I see you sitting in briefing, I know I'm going to get a good day's work out of you. Today, 27 citations, two felony arrests. You be careful on the way home, son. See you tomorrow. And remember, you're an important part of afternoon shift. That is gold. Catch your people doing something right. Ratify the good behavior. Encourage future good behavior. Not just by that employee, but by everybody who's similarly situated. When you observe things not being done right, though, you've got to address it with discipline. And here's the problem I see with discipline. In too many organizations, discipline is a function of outcome. Well, how did it end up? All is well that ends well. No, no, no. Just because things end up going right does not mean we did our job correctly. We cannot rely on luck. We have to rely on process. When people make mistakes, it needs retraining. Maybe there needs to be some component of discipline here. Discipline is never a function of consequence or lack thereof. Discipline is a function of policy. When rules aren't being followed, we got to address it because if we ignore it, we have done the opposite. We've ratified the inappropriate behavior, thus encouraging future inappropriate behavior. And that will occur again and again and again. And finally, all the holes in the Swiss cheese will get lined up. You'll have the tragedy. There'll be a big post-incident investigation. We've been doing it that way for years. We've been doing it that way for years. We got sloppy because we had good outcomes. It's a difficult position, for, especially for younger supervisors. I, just speaking from my experience, because the consequence of things going bad and the consequence of you not correcting inappropriate action could be a line of duty death or, or, you know, somebody not performing and a civilian death, you know? And so you focus a lot of your energy on that. Right. And, and I specifically am surrounded by some young people and myself included being young. And so with, with all that youth comes a lot of inexperience. And then we have inexperience because we have a lower than average call volume. And so you're dealing with that and on your mind all the time is, high risk, low frequency events, core critical tasks. Do we know what we're doing? Are one of my people going to get themselves killed or somebody else killed because they don't know what they're doing? And so you have to make a conscious effort to recognize those things that are done well. And that's a difficult thing to do. For me, yep. it is. And I, I'd imagine for a lot of people, it is. You know, I, I, I try to run a tight ship. I would put out crews of cops, 50 or 60 cops, with a total of 25, 30 years on the job. These are brand new kids, and I put them in a high-risk environment. And I got together with a couple other of my friends who were sergeants on the same shift, and we decided to run a tight shift, you know? And I was told by my, my boss, Lieutenant, nobody's gonna wanna work for you. Nobody's gonna wanna work for you. Your standards are too high. The exact opposite happened. People want the structure. They want direction. They want to know that they're gonna be complimented when things go right, that there's gonna be action when things are not done right. You know, and there were some people who just got off the ship because they didn't like me. So I had this uh, this woman cop who was doing very, very, very well on my shift. Very, very, very well. Uh, she made some mistakes, and I called her on her mistakes. And I think she took it personal when, when I called her on the mistakes. So I'm working late one night, and the back door opens in the office. In comes this woman cop with her parents. She's on probation. This is one of those rites of passage. Parents come in. They're looking at the office and everything. So I went out to greet them, and she's looking at me. Oh, no, what's Sergeant Graham going to say? And I, I complimented her in front of her parents, just like my supervisor complimented me in front of my dad when I brought my dad into the office. Her father comes into the office, the sergeant's office where I was sitting. I didn't properly introduce myself in the hallway. And I said, yeah, you're, you're such and such as dad. He goes, I'm also the chief of police of, and it's one of the big cities. Holy moly, no wonder I heard that last name before. He says, we don't like our daughter working in Los Angeles. We don't like her working by herself. We don't like the area she's patrolling. So we require that she gives us a call every night when she gets home. Well, I'm doing the math. If she's getting off at 1030, getting home at 11 o'clock, that's two o'clock Eastern time, you know? And uh, he says, oddly enough, Sergeant Graham, uh, your name comes up every night in the conversation. Are you aware my daughter does not like you? And I, well, uh, you know, you know, and he goes, every night when my wife hangs up the phone, we're grateful she's got a supervisor who's holding her accountable. It's our only child. You know, thanks for taking care of my daughter. 
Is he holding me accountable for the safety of his kid? Am I accountable for the safety of his kid? You know, for all of you who are supervisors, every day, moms and dads, husbands and wives, partners, sons and daughters, grandparents are holding you accountable for the safety of the loved one. And having somebody die who was on your watch, that's a very big deal. I guarantee you, you will second guess yourself for the rest of your life playing that woulda, coulda, shoulda game. Well, then play the woulda, coulda, shoulda game up front. You got it. When somebody's not following rules, you got to jump on it. And there's tragedy after tragedy after tragedy. In the Air Force, Dr. Tony Kern's got that great book, Darker Shades of Blue, Tragedies in the Air Force. And so many of them get down to supervision, you know? Everybody knows the person's a problem and nobody does a darn thing about it. You know, and we've got to. And I, I know the military does this better than private sector does. But there's still room for improvement. You've got to run that tight ship. You don't. You, you can be friendly, but you can't be their best friends. You've got to take them on. Always. Yeah. One thing that sticks with me that we talk, we say a lot in the military is you're entrusted with leading America's sons and daughters. And that's something that struck home with me probably more recently when, when I became a leader myself. Um, but, uh, you know, you, yeah, you're, you're, you're given young people who are straight out of high school, straight out of the home and put them into a pretty complex environment, right? Like emergency service, public safety, you know, and, uh, yeah, anyways, I just figured I'd well, Sergeant, a lot of these kids have never met, have never had any consequences in their life. You know, they've been up four years of high school, four years of college, living at home, playing video games where every time they do something right, yay, yay, everybody's clapping, everybody's excited because they got an extra point and all that stuff. And then we put them in the real live world of fire service operations, which is filled with risk. When mistakes are made, people end up dead. So you see somebody backing up a piece of apparatus without a spotter behind it, you know? So you go out there, excuse me, you don't have a spotter. Oh, it's just the short distance. Oh, I see. The short distance exception to the mandatory spotter rule. Well, I'm on I'm on government property. Oh, the as long as I'm on government property exception to the mandatory spotter rule. Well, nobody got hit. Oh, as long as no one gets hit exception to the mandatory spotter rule. Come on into my office, park this rig, you know, come on to my office. You and I are going to have a chat. Well, if you're thinking about disciplining me, this is unacceptable. I'm retired now. I get calls from friends of mine in law enforcement. Gordon, you haven't lived until you get a phone call from the mother of one of your cops wondering why you disciplined her son when it ended up okay. If my mother ever called my sergeant, I would be so dead. It's unbelievable. But these kids now, you know, a lot of them have never had any consequences at all in their life. Constant praise. They can't take criticism. We've got to let them know early on. Mistakes, there's going to be a cost to mistakes, you know, and because the costs you pay are going to be certainly less than when somebody ends up dead or somebody ends up getting indicted. You know, you got to run that tight ship. One thing that sticks in my head all the time is you're, they may not know, but you're helping them, right? And you're, you're helping them develop as, an, as adults, really, and mature. And if you were not holding them accountable, not disciplining them, then, you know, that they're, Life is going to be harder for them. And that's, that's something that sticks with me. You know, yeah, they, they may not like it in the moment. They may not like it now, but, you know, they're, I'm helping them be a better human being. You know, that's, and that's something you have to make a conscious effort to, uh, to remind yourself. It's a little easier for me, but I'm a little stoic, but. I used to, I, I was not home that much when my kids were growing up. I was always on the road trying to build businesses, but I take my son out fishing a couple Saturdays a week. And we go out, if you go out eight miles in the Pacific Ocean, you can't see the land anymore. And he actually thought he was in the middle of the ocean because you're on the horizon and you can't see it. And we would talk sex and we would talk drugs and we talk personal responsibility. Jacob, what would you do if this happened? What would you do if this happened, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And you can see he was bored, but he couldn't go anyplace because it's a 23 foot boat. <laughs> so now he's a big time psychologist and he paid me the nicest compliment. Dad. We weren't fishing, were we? What do you mean by that? You were telling me things I needed to know. I get moms and dads and kids in my office. They have never talked to their kids about anything. They're friends, not parents. You know, no, you can't have that. And that's the breakdown of American society when there's a lack of parents or a lack of appropriate parents. And we, we see that on a regular basis. For those of you who are parents, you know, give your kisses to those, those kids those lessons learned, you know, and prevent them from making the same mistakes. 
you know, sound advice, sir. Well, we covered some, some great things. I, I really appreciate your time. Um, I know that we probably could go for hours and I would love that, but I don't want to take any more of your time. I'd like to, you know, give the floor to you. Is there, are, are there anything, is there anything else you'd like to, to share with us before we sign out? Yeah, just very, very quickly. For those of you who are not familiar with, uh, I know it's a different service. I know the inner rivalry sometimes, but uh, Admiral Hyman Rickover, uh, he had those rules for success. And I, it's the foundation of my thinking, seven rules. Number one, continuous improvement. Number two, getting and keeping good people. Number three, the key role of the supervisor. Number four, the respect risk. Number five, training's got to be constant and rigorous. Number six, the audit process. We got to make sure what we say we're doing, we're in fact doing. And number seven is continuous learning. And when all of those are present, you, you know, you have a very high reliability organization. Uh, just one quick aside on, on Admiral Rickover. He was interviewed by some famous uh, uh, woman who interviewed all these uh, very smart people. And I was reading this in Parade Magazine a number of years ago. She, she said he, she was being interviewed. And the interviewer said, what's the most difficult interview you ever did? And she said, Admiral Hyman Rickover. Why is that? I studied his life and I started off, uh, Admiral Rickover, you're the smartest person in the world. And he said, no, I'm not all that smart. It's just that you're incredibly stupid. You know? <laughs> he was a very difficult guy to get along with. And if you talk to Navy people who knew him, very difficult. But you know the record of the nuclear Navy uh, they, for, during Admiral Rickover's tenure. That was you were truly running a tight ship, that high reliability organization. And, you know, what you're doing in the Air Force with your global reach and now your expansion into space and all the things the Air Force is doing. You're the women and men who are going to be leading this operation. My hat's off to you for your work. And I close all of my programs on the civilian side with good luck, good health, goodbye. God bless you. God bless America. And please keep our soldiers, sailors, Marines, airmen, and Coast Guard personnel in your prayers tonight. Without them, this nation would be in a much bigger mess. And that is so true today where we are. So I want to thank you for your work. My hat's off to you. And I, I really wish you continued success. Sergeant, thank you for taking the time out of your day to be with me. And I wish you continued success also. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Fire Dog Podcast. You can find more commentary articles and episodes just like this regularly posted to our new website, firedog.us. We're also on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash the Fire Dog Podcast and on Instagram at the Fire Dog Podcast. That is the Fire, D-A-W-G Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, like, and follow to stay plugged into every new episode and give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts if you've enjoyed this episode. Lastly, we'd love it if you'd share this podcast with your friends and coworkers, either on social media or right there at the Firehouse. This is Matt Wilson and guest Mr. Gordon Graham. Until next time, stay safe.